0: All right, guys, I want you to listen real quickly to uh, what I'm going to tell you about GoToMeeting. How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track from managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably remote on your favorite podcasting platform, or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to the Sports Fix. That's right. Sports Fix Tuesday today. Tommy's on the phone from his home in Frederick, Maryland. I'm in studio. Aaron's at home. Aaron, I think, might be rejoining me soon, Tommy. I think I'm ready to take the leap and have maybe Aaron come in in a mask, maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I, You know, Tommy? Well, you know
1: what, Kevin? What? Kevin, as, as long as the numbers keep going up, why not?
0: Wh- which numbers are you looking at? Wh- num- which numbers are going up?
1: Maryland had, and, and this makes sense if you're doing testing, Maryland yesterday had their highest number of, of cases.
0: Uh, I didn't see that news. I've seen the news of yeah. the states that have been reopened now for a while, and the numbers based on where they were prior to reopening haven't gone up. In some cases, they've even gone down. You know,
1: Maryland had their highest number of cases. Uh, I think yesterday is
0: that because we've got. Uh, so in sure. Is that because well, we sure tested more yesterday?
1: Of, it's probably because of testing. I'm sure they're catching more. But that, I mean, that shouldn't make you feel good that means there's more people walking around there out there with the virus that we didn't know about before
0: and but it it doesn't make me feel bad about it because that means there're more people that have been walking around the virus that haven't gotten seriously ill you know that not means yet. that mean not yet but that means in in you know perhaps that as we've discussed before the more people that have actually Contracted the virus and haven't gotten ill, and maybe even been completely asymptomatic, just means that the the lethalness of the virus is, you know, isn't what they originally thought. I think we know that already. Um, look, we've got states in in the U.S. right now where they have, the, you know, they their testing centers are just sitting there waiting for people to come in and get tested.
1: Oh, I know. You know, I know. Every- it just seems like a, 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 the decisions to open up. It seems are mo- and um you know are motivated more by economics and fatigue I think than than actual science uh, See,
0: yeah you keep saying that, and by the way, I think everybody would prefer you know everybody that can afford to prefer um being safe and healthy versus you know going back prematurely um but there isn't necessarily evidence of that in a lot of cases. I mean, I just think we, you know, it comes back to the same thing. And I don't want to start this podcast today off with 35 minutes of this. Um, Because really what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go out and try to find me some hydroxychloroquine and a Z-pack and some zinc and just take it as a preventative. Um, Don't do that, by the way, regardless of who tells you to do that or who tells you he's doing it. Um, you know
1: why he ain't taking it? Somebody <laughs> gave
0: him stick I knew. I knew. Somebody. People are people saying that because as I watched it live, as he as he you know sort of very um sort of spontaneously, it was not planned. I don't think for him to say it. And I I kept looking at him like I think this is one of his you know just complete off the cuff stretches of the truth, if not outright lies. I don't know if I even believe him. Are people saying that or not?
1: Oh, yeah. People are saying that. I I joked on Twitter that somebody gave him chicklets and told it told him it was this. But uh, <laughs> it was it and, was and, a
0: placebo? Yeah. Ch- chicklets. And so people, you don't swallow it, you gotta chew it first. Yeah. <laughs> some people
1: suggested and this is where he's brilliant, it was a diversion that to take away any uh concentration on him firing another uh, inspector general Friday afternoon. Yeah, right. Yeah, so,
0: I know everybody yeah, keeps talking lot- about the Friday night, fi- the Friday firings. Um, yeah.
1: So, y- so look, 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 Kevin, oh, Kevin, I'm not saying people shouldn't open up. I'm just saying my gut feeling is what's driving it is fatigue and economics. Uh, and if you want to invite Aaron in there to the studio, uh, have at it. I'm not showing up anytime soon.
0: Um, I don't want you to. You're vulnerable. You know, as you said, day one, this thing has, this thing is targeting me. It's out to get me. Um, I um, am, I, I, there's no doubt there's a fatigue factor. There is also, you know, an economic factor. There's also a desperation factor. Um yeah. I I I think the the news yesterday from three governors in particular in New York, California and Texas. Old Governor Andrew Cuomo who you know has been lauded and complimented so much for the way he's been able to communicate to his state residents uh, since the beginning of this thing and he's he's a good communicator there's no doubt about it and, and look putting him side by side with trump as a communicator i mean anybody's going to look like a better communicator Listen,
1: his father was a
0: great he was a phenomenal communicator forget politics mario cuomo was a great yeah. great orator but, you know, Cuomo starts, in my opinion, yesterday he said he's, in, he's now encouraging sports teams in New York to reopen without fans. And the quotes uh, were, hockey, basketball, baseball, football, whoever can reopen, we're ready, willing, and able now. I think this is in the best interest of all people in the best interest of the state of New York, close quote. Um, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who, r- correct me if I'm wrong, just two weeks ago said we may not have sports in California until 2021 he said that he's looking to resume sports without fans in the state as early as the first week or so in June. And then Texas Governor Greg Abbott said he's ready to start things at the end of May. And in addition, he went a step further and said, look, Little League Baseball can resume play now with parents watching under social distancing guidelines. I mean, I think over the last week or so, as Florida and Arizona in particular have really legitimately become open to this, you know, some of these states are going to start thinking to themselves, we have been economically beaten down. We can't have this potential revenue going to another state. Can't have it.
1: I know. You're right. Texas on Saturday had their highest rate of new cases. With 33 deaths on Saturday from the coronavirus. Where,
0: where where did that daily death rate rank? I'm not sure. Yeah. Sounds pretty... I'll tell
1: you what. If, if 33 people in Texas in one day died from rabies, it'd be a big deal, wouldn't it?
0: Died of rabies? Yes. Yes? Uh, it, what, and the relevance of that is what?
1: Well, the point is, don't dismiss it. Because it's coronavirus, and it's a lower number than, than what everyone expected. Well, three I mean, how many people is it typical
0: from- to die of a heart attack or heart disease on a given day? In Texas? Yeah.
1: They don't, they don't have any hearts in Texas, so I don't
0: know. <laughs> and by the way, we don't get data from Texas because they're a different country. Um, yeah. I, I don't, by the way, yeah. in
1: Florida, the other state, Uh, The governor there is is hiding, is hiding data. The data scientist who designed uh, the uh, COVID-19 dashboard has been removed from her position because she refused to censor, censor data and manipulate numbers to generate support for reopening, according to what she says.
0: Okay.
1: So I wouldn't trust anything that came out of Florida or Texas.
0: I'll tell you what. I'll be honest with you. I don't trust anything that's coming out of anybody right now. I I really don't. I, um, I you know, one, one week we're hearing one thing. The next week we hear another one week. This person's doing a terrific job. The next week he's doing a terrible job. One week, you know, it's ventilators and masks. The next, next week it's testing. And now here we are with states that apparently are just sitting there waiting on people to come in and get tested. Apparently Cuomo now has plenty of tests, um so you know we 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 talked about this last week, and I asked you just a simple question: why is everybody up in arms? Why do we need three hundred and thirty million tests or you know a, a test per person? Well, the answer is we don 't, um, but that doesn 't stop people from claiming that it 's imperative that we do i i don't i don 't really want to have this conversation this The sports conversation is interesting because to me, all of a sudden the 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 desire to open up states, New York in particular, because of all of the outbreaks and it being a hot spot for so long, to me reeks of well, we can't let that revenue go somewhere else
1: it does it it, ab- it absolutely does i mean it it, re- it it's desperation and pressure and uh, hopefulness, you know that uh, a second wave. Won't, won't I mean New York of all places, because of the proximity of so many people in one small area uh has the biggest risk if there is a second wave. but look I, look at my hope is that I'm in a press box by September somewhere even watching football or baseball at the latest.
0: Yeah, I don't know that you're going to be in a press box watching baseball or football, but you're going to be watching baseball or football and probably working. But again, I think covering it virtually for a while. I, I don't, I mean, he, here's the thing. we're. I know it's repetitive here, but if these sports try to reopen with the belief that one positive test would somehow cripple Their sport or a team in it, then they can't reopen. They have to be prepared to move forward with positive tests because I don't think anybody knows anything, but I would bet a million dollars if I had it and it was my last million dollars that there's going to be an athlete when these sports that reopen who tests positive. They have to be able to move on from that. No one could move on from it in March. Rudy Gobert shut down sports all by himself. It was going to happen regardless whether or not it was him or somebody else. If they have to, all these sports have to be prepared that if somebody tests positive in their sport, a coach, a player, and essential person, that the sport's going to move forward and they're going to have some sort of plan. That everybody gets tested and those that test positive at that point sit out and those that don't get to play, whatever the plan is. Because if you don't have that as a plan to move, if you don't have a plan to move forward after a positive test, then this is fool's gold.
1: I agree. But, uh, again, I said this and you kind of dismissed it. The biggest roadblock to all this, if that happens, will be the discussions that will take place in people's homes between uh, husbands and wives, players and their wives, about the safety of doing what they're doing. There will be a lot of pressure in homes, in all these sports, about the risk they may be putting their family at, even if it's a minimal risk.
0: I think every, every family is going to have a unique conversation. Some, you know, I mean, these are for the most part, super healthy, very young, very low risk individuals. And by the way, their spouses and their children are very low risk in most cases. And I don't know, not all spouses would be, um, and they make a shitload of money and they haven't been getting paychecks recently. So regardless of how wealthy they are, and some of them are so beyond wealthy, it, 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 may, it may prompt the conversation of, is it really worth it? Maybe you don't need to play anymore. We have enough money to live the rest of our lives and generations beyond us. Um, but I, I would bet that the significant majority of athletes in professional sports are going to play. And and that there will be an, an, you know there will be a story here or there about somebody who says I'm not taking the risk, but it's going to be well into the 90s percentile of players and coaches who play and coach. If anything, it would be older coaches that may feel like it's not worth the risk.
1: That may be, but then it comes down to of that small group of players, who are the players we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I mean if it's a huge if, a, if, a, if, a, if yeah. a Mike
1: Trout says I'm not putting my family at risk. I mean he's exactly fixed the the sort of scope where he doesn't need the money to play this year. Right.
0: Well yeah. anyway, um let's get to uh let's get to the last stance. Let's start with that because it'll actually be a nice segue into something else I want to talk about. It it killed it. It's the all time most-watched documentary ever on ESPN. I don't know how it ranks to any other documentary on any other network, um, but an average of 5.6 million people watched it throughout its run. By the way, just as an aside, did you see the NASCAR ratings from over the weekend?
1: I, I I just read the headlines that they were the most that they've had in quite a few years.
0: The uh, Darlington race on Sunday, <clears throat> which was called the Real Heroes 400, which was which aired on Fox, averaged 6.3 million viewers, up 38 percent from the last NASCAR race, which was run in Phoenix on March 8th before the pandemic shutdown. Um, it, I mean, it really does indicate an. In- of an incredible appetite right now for live sports. Now I didn't really watch any of the NASCAR. I didn't even watch the live charity golf event that much. I watched very little of it. Um, I need real sports. I need real events. I need real competitions. The Darlington one was, but I'm not a NASCAR guy, so it doesn't matter anyway. But, uh, I talked about it, uh, yesterday for a little bit. um, and and I'll circle back to it with you, but why don't you go first and and give me sort of you know a couple of your biggest you know and, and most favorite moments from the Last Dance.
1: Well, what's interesting on the Last Dance is you uh, know if 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 it if it made if it only enhanced Jordan's legacy and it did obviously, I think it reminded everybody uh, who had forgotten how great he is. It elevated Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr, like if, if they were given Oscars out Best Supporting Actor, Steve Kerr.
0: That's a good question, I mean, by the way. Who was the best supporting actor in The Last Dance? Um,
1: I mean, Steve Kerr. I mean, I think just just I mean just enhanced his legacy, uh, and that's without even talking about his post playing career. Uh, legacy, which is which will put him in the Hall of Fame.
0: Well, not mentioned, not mentioned once at all during the ten episodes. Yes. I don't believe there's nothing about Kerr, you, you know, as a coach or a broadcaster. No,
1: no. Uh, but uh, so that was my impression. Is how much Steve Kerr uh, sh- shined, in, 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 in particularly in the end, the last couple of of uh, of episodes, talking about his father. Uh, and and how he was shot and killed, uh, and you know, obviously, you know, I, I was surprised. He he and, he said him and Jordan never talked about losing their father.
0: Yeah, I agree. I that was, he, that surprised he, he me. He said
1: it, it. He said it was too, I guess, too painful uh, to share. I actually but, thought he
0: sort of implied that maybe Jordan didn't even know the history of Steve Kerr's family. That's probably
1: that's probably true. Let's face it. I mean, we we saw that. That that Jordan was was pretty focused on Jordan, and and when he was focused on somebody else, it was how can that person help me?
0: <laughs> yeah, the um, you know, Kerr was definitely over the last you know, I don't know, four episodes, five, six episodes, whatever it was. He was a, a really good storyteller. Um, he was involved in a couple of the key moments. Obviously, the the fight that he got in with Michael at practice when Michael came back, him taking the last shot, the story of Kerr. You know, one of the things I think I pointed out yesterday on the podcast is that um, it's a bit of a reach for people who may come out of that thinking that Steve Kerr was like this massive underdog story. You know, I understand that he... Um, didn't have any scholarships until his senior year in high school, but the scholarship that he did get was to the University of Arizona, which was a basketball powerhouse under Lute Olsen uh, at the time, and he, he had a spectacular college career. At Arizona he was a a for any college basketball fan you know during that period of time in the 80s Steve Kerr had become a household name as if you're a college basketball fan that those teams those Sean those uh Lute Olson teams one of them went to the final four that had Kerr and Elliott as sort of the lead guys on that team you knew who Steve Kerr was he wasn't an undrafted guy he was picked in the second round and back then it was more I think it was more than seven more than two rounds in the draft um back then uh I could be wrong about 1988 or 89 whatever whatever year he was he was picked but um uh he was not this you know out of nowhere guy nobody had ever heard of him underdog story he was a hell of a college basketball player and must have been a hell of a high school player even if it was his senior year to get an offer from Arizona
1: yeah I mean when he said when he said, "You know, I I I got one college scholarship," I thought he was going to say from some junior college, <laughs> yeah, right, or something like that. I didn't think he'd say Arizona. I think uh, I think Dennis Rodman enhanced his status.
0: He might be the leading. Uh, he might be the the best supporting actor of the series.
1: Oh, my mind is Kerr, but uh, Rodman comes close. I mean, I think people have a newfound respect for his ability and. Uh, have maybe a newfound respect for what an unusual phenomenon he was at that time yeah. in, in sports, and particularly in the NBA. I mean, to basically go from playing in the in the finals to to one night to wrestling in WWE the next. You know, I mean, who does that today? You know, nobody does that. So I think he his his situation was certainly enhanced. I read an article that says Scotty Pippen is very upset with the way he's been portrayed yeah, in, read, in, in the, the documentary. Thing. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and look, I mean, if he's talking about the fact, you know, the point where he refused, you know, to come off the bench, I'm not talking about the migraines, but at the end of that game where he, it was, you know, the play was to Tony Kukoc, and he refused because it wasn't for him. He pouted. There's no way to sugarcoat that.
0: No, none. You're right.
1: No, and and his his players. I mean, it was it was it was obviously something that in a situation like this, you know, where time heals wounds, that's a wound that's not healed.
0: Yeah, there's no way to get away from that, and there's really it would have been hard to get away from telling that story as part of the Bulls, you know, eight year run, six titles with Jordan. I mean, he did that he he quit on his team because he didn't get a play called for him at the end of a playoff game yeah. you know I, I you can't you can't really you can't make it's really hard to make a case that he did the right thing
1: yeah and uh, he looks bad i mean look the part the other part is it, it, what came across and which is the truth and i guess what try, probably bugs him is he's it came across throughout the entire documentary, which it wasn't about him. It was about Michael Jordan, but still, he was clearly the second banana uh, on the bull on those Bulls teams. Right. He was Robin, and Michael Jordan was was Batman. And I guess that bothers him to some extent. I don't know how you get around that.
0: But it didn't. Either, but it, no it didn't. One. It didn't bother him during you know the course of this series you actually i i felt like pippin really had incredible self-awareness about what he was who he was and it didn't ever manifest itself into you know a problem with pippin wanting more of the attention and by the way pippin it turns out that pippin was a much better Uh, Was more well liked and was closer with his teammates than Jordan ever was. I think that's one of the things you know I was going to mention if I didn't mention it yesterday. Is I think we learned from this, and even Steve Kerr, you know, uh, said it that Jordan lived a completely different life than everybody else in that team. It was hard for him to be close to any of his teammates. He had different responsibilities. He was a a worldwide brand. And because of it it, it, it appeared to me, and Kerr pretty much implied this, that his teammates never really got to know him personally, and he wasn't necessarily close with any of his, any of his teammates. And I pointed out, Tommy, that if anything, the thing that you learned about Jordan is that he had that sort of old soul personality. He, he got along better and seemed to gravitate towards older people that were around him in his life. You know the people. Well, his,
1: his, the guy who was closest to him was his security guard. George, yeah, yeah,
0: George. Well, Gus. Gus was, and Gus became a bit of a father figure. But George Kohler, you know, c- consistently gets Chiron as personal assistant and best friend.
1: Yeah. So, look, I think Pippin's reaction in 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 the moment of the documentary is different than Pippin's reaction now to the aftermath of the documentary.
0: Sure. No, I understand that.
1: And I, and I think that's what, that's what he, he is. It's kind of, he, he's hearing all over again, everyone worship at Michael Jordan's feet and how everybody else, it was Jordan and the Jordanaires. <laughs> he, he's reliving that. And you know, he's, I've never been a huge Scotty Pippen fan, but he's one of the top 50 players in the history of the league
0: Easily, he's he's higher than top fifty. Yeah, I
1: I know. I know that. I I absolutely know that. But uh, I think he just hates reliving that that again. Uh, And so I guess what he should do is convince ESPN to make a documentary about Scottie Pippen.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised. You know, I, I was surprised to read that. I think Jackie McMullen wrote the story um, about how yeah. Pippen is not happy at all and that Rodman, as part of that story, or at least the story I read, and it could have been a, a follow-up story, Rodman's been very much sort of out there defending Pippen. Yes, he had. And, um... And that you know and and throughout that's why I'm saying that throughout the series, one of the things I think that I got out of it is how well liked and respected Scotty was. And how, you know, remember there was that one episode where Scotty, maybe, you know, when Jordan came back and Scott, you know, Jordan was really tough on people and Scotty was the guy that went around and said, don't worry about it. You know, he, this is what he does and d- don't take it personally. Scotty was the guy that was well-liked. And by the way, Scotty was, you know, you, you said top 50 and I'm I, I'm not here to, I'm I, it's not my point to argue it, but. Scottie Pippen really is one of the greatest combo offensive and defensive players in one body in NBA history. You know, he really was a great player. But his his legacy, sorry, Scottie, you can't leave that part of the story out. You can't. You can't leave that part no. of the story out. It's impossible to leave out the the part of the story where you quit on people and Cartwright had to address the team and he broke down crying about it and people were really upset with you. But you apologized and you got back into the series. And it's also yeah. you, you can't rewrite history that you won a title without Jordan because you didn't. You won fifty five games, but in, then in the in the second year they were struggling. And they needed Mike, you know. They didn't win it that year when he came back late in March, but he but he gave him a better chance. I mean, the um,
1: I, and I think he was also reminded about. Uh, and I think he doesn't like the. Maybe he does. I think he does like it when people feel sorry for him, probably. But uh, the other part of the early day of the early episodes was what a stupid contract he had.
0: Right. God, you know
1: what? And uh, you know, yeah. you know, he took it. From what I've gathered, he took it for the security of the money for his family, rather than risking long-term security for his family, rather than betting on himself in a couple of years to cash in on his talent. So,
0: you know. If you go back to the, the, that point in time, and we got Scotty Pippen's entire backstory, you know, growing up, you know, one of, I forget, was it 11 or 12 siblings in Arkansas, playing basketball on a dirt court, you know, having tragedy in the family, including to his father and at least, I think, one brother. Um, and, you know, growing up, you know, very poor. You know, it's really hard for anybody to put yourself into his position where he's offered this long term, you know, opportunity at long term financial. Um, you know, sort of uh, comfort, you know, for him and his family. And even though it was, in retrospect, a bad contract, and Jerry Reinsdorf should have, because it would have happened with a different owner in a different time, that they would have gone to Pippen, not selflessly. It would have been selfishly. It would have been a selfish motive because they didn't want to lose him when the contract ran out. But it, most owners would have gone to, to Pippen and said, we want to tear this contract up and give you another deal that pays you a lot more money in these final three years of the deal, but keeps you here for another four years beyond that or whatever. Um, but he didn't do that. You know, it, it was, you know, he seemed to be very stuck on this notion of you sign a contract, you, you live up to that contract. And when it's over, we'll, we'll try to do a new contract. Well, it wasn't in the best interest of the bulls, to to be that short sighted on Pippen's contract, you know, unless you want to say, um, unless you want to say they got the best of the deal and the thing ended, you know, after the '98 season and Pippen never made another dime from them, you know, so the the, the Bulls they got the better of a one sided deal with Scotty Pippen and six uh, and six titles, but the the issue with that is maybe there would have been more of a chance to extend the thing, but it's. Pippin wasn't the hold up. Pippin wasn't the issue. The issue was, Jer- was Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause and others in that organization. And and Reinsdorf, you know, and he gave that explanation, by the way, as Michael was watching it on his iPad at the end of, uh, of episode 10, you know, uh, Reinsdorf explaining that we couldn't keep this team together. We couldn't keep Bushler and Kerr and Rodman and other guys together because they were going to demand too much money. And Michael essentially says that that's bullshit. I would have signed for a year, and a lot of these players to come back and attempt to win a seventh title would have signed for a one year deal as well. I, I that sort of rings now, hollow one, to me, too.
1: Yeah, it does. And the one guy he did preface Pippin that was Pippin. Yeah, yeah, the one guy he did preface, and you know, they wouldn't have won a title, another title that year, particularly with the Spurs, you know, starting to move up. Uh, Making their move that year, they wouldn't have won one without Pippen.
0: Uh, true, but Michael thinks that he would have been able to convince Pippen to come back to try for a seventh at that point. I mean, they would have had to pay him for at least a year, and maybe Pippen would have held out, and they would have had to create a long-term deal with Pippen. Who knows? But yeah, the the, the next year was the first year of the you know Duncan Robinson you know Spurs right. and, and you know and, and that run. Um, because they took out the Knicks, if you recall, who made it back to the finals um, in '99. In I, I mean, I still think that the biggest takeaway from this series from this documentary is how the hell did they let it come to an end? How, in God's name did Reinsdorf, did Phil Jackson? did Michael Jordan? How did Michael Jordan let it come to an end? He didn't own the team, but he could have gone and said, what are we doing here? Are you serious? I mean, you've got to fire Jerry Krause, and then Phil will come back, and then Scotty will be okay signing a one year deal, and all of the supporting you know, players on the roster will be able to get back here and will be able to go for seven. Why would you do this? I mean, tell me. But how... I, think,
1: I, think, I think Michael knew uh, Reinsdorf well, and he knew that that wouldn't fly with Reinsdorf. Like I told you before, Reinsdorf has a lot of good qualities, he's very old school, very loyal. Extremely loyal, but he's also a hard-ass. I mean, a real hard-ass. And it's not likely to count, to to basically be sympathetic to a player walking into his office, even a player like Jordan, and telling him that the guy that, I mean, he could have fired Krauss. You know, I mean, Reinsdorf wasn't oblivious to what was going on. I don't think that it would have made any difference at all to Reinsdorf. Well, Rein, well Reinsdorf Phil, did you
0: know, Reinsdorf did say that he, you know, wanted to make another run at Phil, you know, and Michael obviously says that he was ready to go, you know, for seven. I, I don't know. Clearly, um there were there was a combination of a sense of perhaps they had gotten the most out of it, and maybe that was Phil to a certain degree.
1: That was that was Phil's uh Phil said it was time
0: to go. Yeah, now Phil, remember, also, you know, has the perspective of being told before the season started by the general manager that you could go 82-0 and and win the title and you're not coming back. Um, But, you know, perhaps we got the sense from Phil that he thought maybe the run was over. There were hurt feelings along the way, whether it was Pippen or Krause um, and, and others. There was an owner who was far, far more deferential to a general manager than probably he should have been. Um, but to your point, maybe that was just part of his personality. Um, and you know, they had one, they had one, six, two, three beats, you know, and there was some symmetry to that, you know? Um, but anyway, uh, I still think so here, I wrote something down when you were talking about Kerr and Rodman earlier, and that is, you know, you think Kerr's legacy was enhanced. Um, and Rodman's also. What do you think about Jordan? What did you think about Jordan after this? You know, I think everybody understands the greatness of Jordan. I I don't think that's debatable. Young people who weren't privy to that that era, you know, even are blown away with what they saw if they were watching the documentary. And I think some of that polling on ESPN proved it. Eighteen to thirty-four year olds said sixty-six percent to thirty-four percent Jordan's the superior player to LeBron James. Um, but what did you think of of Michael the person when this thing was over? Especially, you know, in you know under the with the context of. He said before this series started that a lot of people aren't going to like me when this thing is over.
1: Well, I think, I think the intensity, the uh, single-mindedness that he had, uh, no matter what human feelings were involved, I think I knew that already. I wasn't surprised by, by uh, the way he came across. Uh, so I wasn't necessarily surprised by anything. And look, I, I think Jordan... Deep down, I'd like to think you know. I mean, because of the way he treated some people, you know, it's a good-hearted guy uh, who uh, just has an unbelievable competitive streak about him in in terms of everything. But I think ultimately, Michael wants to do the right. That that's that's where that's where you draw the line. I mean, do they want to do the right thing? You know, is it, that his first move? And I still think, you know, when it comes down to it, that's the kind of guy he is. It may get lost, uh, behind all the competitiveness and, and bravado, but I think ultimately Jordan, in most situations in his life, wants to do the right thing. Am I, am I?
0: I agree. I think well, I no I think I agree with you on that. I I I I I made this list when you were talking earlier about Kerr and saying that he was the biggest winner. He was the, you know, he he would have won best supporting actor and I just made the, you know, the very cliché winners and losers list off of this documentary and I um the winners, to me, are are Jordan number one because I found him to be an even more compelling figure, maybe even a deeper figure than I thought. Um, that you know, the, the player that he was, the competitor that he was. You know, there's a lot that we knew going into it. We were reminded of. There's a lot that we didn't know. Um, by the way, there's a really interesting story. Just as an aside, please remind me to get to this when we're done about Jordan his original preference college wise was maryland which i did not know that um but we'll get to that in a minute but jordan to me came off as uh i i really i i, I like michael jordan i think even more and i think i think he's a um he, maybe he's a more complex figure than i thought not like super complex but more than i thought Um, Phil was a winner in all of this. Chuck Daly to me was a winner in all of this. And I'll get to that in a moment. Rodman was a winner. And I think Kerr, you're right, you know, came off as very much a winner. The two coaches, Phil Jackson and Chuck Daly in particular, their handling of Dennis Rodman in particular, um, made them, you know, shine in this series. And I, I think I mentioned this to you a week or two ago after one of the episodes, maybe it was after the Rodman episode, um, which was way back at the beginning of this thing that Dennis Rodman was very lucky in his life to have gotten Chuck Daly and Phil Jackson as his two coaches. You know, he could have ended up in a bad organization with a bad coach or a bad series of coaches that would not have been as empathetic, would not have been as emotionally understanding of his issues, which were, you know, let's face it, mental instability. Um, and and he was he was blessed. To have had two guys that really made the effort to understand him and had sort of innately this empathetic part of them. Uh, b- by the way, probably wouldn't have happened if Rodman hadn't been as good as he was, right. you know. Um, but I-, I thought that Phil and Chuck Daly both came out as winners in this thing. And then the losers list. Isaiah is number one on the list off of this documentary. Um, Reinsdorf and Krauss both, Krauss in particular comes off, but they both in tandem shut this thing down essentially. And then, Tommy, you know who I think maybe the biggest loser of this documentary was? LeBron James because Michael Jordan's legacy was enhanced to a level that I don't even think anybody could have imagined that it would have gone. And he was introduced to a generation that has absolutely believed for a while now that LeBron James is the greatest player in the history of the game. And they don't necessarily – they're not convinced of that anymore. Um, LeBron James has been compared to Michael so much over the last five weeks – it's really incredible, and I don't know if you saw this, but Brian Windhorst, I guess LeBron made an appearance on um, Uninterrupted and he alluded to the fact that Michael would have been a great teammate more than an adversary. And so Brian Windhorst wrote about it and tweeted it out and wrote, as people compare and argue about their legacies, LeBron James says he's envisioned Michael Jordan as a teammate, not an adversary. And he wrote a story about that. LeBron retweeted the Wintour story and wrote the following. No, I didn't say I envisioned MJ as a teammate, not an adversary. A question was asked: Do I think I could have been a teammate of his and compliment his game? I love the Greats. I would have loved to have played with them all during their runs because I'm a historian of the game, but I also would die to compete versus compete versus every single one of them too. Exclamation point. Don't ever get it twisted. And then he puts the emoji of, you know, a king's crown. Nevertheless, MJ, thank you for being my angel, inspiration, and superhero. But look, Brian Windhorse is a friend of LeBron James's. You know, he's been as close to LeBron as any media member for, you know, LeBron's career. And LeBron just outright retweeted it and refuted it. And, and, and I think he did it, Tommy, because I think there's been this sense over the last five weeks that. Michael's a better player, a better competitor, you know, um, and all of that. And, you know, by the way, LeBron would have been a perfect compliment to Jordan's game. Perfect. But um, what, do, what do you make of that, of of him retweeting that?
1: Well, I think that's a very good observation to put him on the list of losers. Uh, I I think you're right. And I think he's overcompensating for this reputation he had, you know, of, of – He was the ringleader considered in the recruitment of the super team they had in Miami. Right. Uh, basically. And, and, you know, uh, and he received a lot of criticism from old school NBA guys saying, we didn't try to, uh, get the guys that were beating us to play for us. We tried to beat them. You know, I mean, and and that that was the argument, whether fair or not, right. from some of the old school NBA guys against LeBron. And I think LeBron's been down, you know, living with that. I mean, LeBron, I think it's, it's you know, it's funny because Jordan and LeBron, you could say, are both ultra, ultra sensitive to criticism, but one uses it as fuel. And I don't know what LeBron does with it. I mean, LeBron gets defensive and Jordan gets aggressive.
0: Yeah, I don't. I, I think you're right about LeBron getting defensive. Nowhere near as defensive as, let's just say, Kevin Durant would have gotten had Kevin Durant been in this LeBron spot over the years. But, you know, um,. Yeah, there's no doubt that it's it's defensive and that they both were were, you know, they both reacted to criticism, but they both reacted to it differently. I think that's true. You know the thing about LeBron, and I've never—I'm—I'm I'm not a—I'm not a big LeBron fan. I've never been a big LeBron fan. Um, I respect the game, and you know, in all of our conversations over the years, I totally get the comparison to, to Magic more than Michael. He's always been more Magic Johnson than Michael Jordan in a lot of different ways, in style of game, um, in sort of the way he is on the court. Um Jordan and Kobe have always been sort of similar. Uh Ma- Ma- Magic LeBron's but always been more similar to Magic. But anyway, um LeBron has something else. Jordan wasn't winning titles in his first 7 or 8 years or whatever, however long it took, 7 years. And he was losing to great teams, the Pistons teams. But Jordan was carrying his team in a similar way to the way LeBron was was carrying his team. But there was one big difference. LeBron seemed to shrink through that first half of his career when he wasn't in a front-running position. You know, there is all of the examples we can go through, whether it was that series that they lost to Boston when he was in Cleveland where he basically, you know, went completely AWOL in one of those games. I think it was Game uh, game game 5 or Game 6 when he barely even shot, like he took 12 shots from the floor or whatever it was. There was the series in Miami when they played Dirk in Dallas in the finals, and he literally at the end of Game 3 was hiding – in the corner didn't didn't want any part of the ball on key possessions it was like a hot potato like lebron went through this period in his career he really did where there was like an anxiety issue you know that's not imagined we all witnessed it and then he had the game that i think turned it all around and it was that game in my it was that game in boston in the eastern conference finals when he was in miami and um, they, uh, they're they down three games to two. Rondo's having a ridiculous series in that particular uh, Eastern Conference Finals. And LeBron goes at – they're down 3-2. I think it was Rondo – I forget Pierce and others. And they're down 3-2 in a series that they should win. They've got home court advantage. And they go to Boston for game six. It was like a Thursday or a Friday night national TV. And LeBron had never, up until this point, delivered the way he delivered. 45 points, 15 rebounds, like 10 assists, I think it was a triple-double. And they won that game, and they went on to win Game 7, and then they got that first title against OKC with the Heat. And, you know, he's had great moments and great clutch moments since, I mean, even though I think Kyrie Irving sort of won that Game 7 at Golden State, he was brilliant in Game 5 and Game 6. So Jordan never once, never once was questioned about his ability to deliver with the game on the line. Never once.
1: No. No, and never once. And again, when I talk about what their differences in reactions would be, aggressive versus defensive – Jordan, I mean, Jordan's reaction was always like, like I had to describe it, uh, kind of like a fighter. You know, Jordan. Whenever anyone would suggest publicly that you know there was that that Jordan wasn't the best or that somebody was as good as him, he would react with disdain, and and you could argue, you know, no regard at all for what people thought of what he said or that person. Where I think LeBron, you know, reacts defensively and probably thinks of all considerations and how he'll come across and what, you know, I just think that their reaction to the same thing it illustrates the difference in, in clutch moments. Yeah, You know, I mean, Jordan's reaction with, you know, is, is basically – I mean, you know, Le- 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 LeBron's just, just different. They're just different guys, you know? I mean, totally uh, look, different LeBron, guys. Yeah, look, LeBron, I think LeBron is a good guy, and I think his first uh, move uh, for almost everything is to do the right thing. Uh, but, you know, me, I've always, I mean, I, I'm in the Will Chamberlain camp, uh, greatest of, of all time. But I think Jordan put a lot of distance between, some distance between himself and LeBron in that argument. After it because of this documentary,
0: you know the the other big difference between the two, and I know this is era driven probably um LeBron runs his team. LeBron is basically owner, general manager, coach, and star player of the teams that he's been on. Michael Jordan was told after. Doug Collins was fired, his favorite coach, and that Phil Jackson had been hired. That would never happen with LeBron ever. And again, I I understand the difference in eras. You know, where we LeBron essentially ushered in the I'm going to play general manager slash owner and put together my team, and they're going to allow me to do this. Basically, it's just a completely different. Set them, and by the way, I don't really care. I don't love it. I, I, you know, I like teams staying the same. I like you know, you know, trying to beat them rather than join them. I didn't love the Durant move from OKC to Golden State, even though I, I acknowledge Durant's a great player. And I acknowledge that LeBron's a great player, and LeBron's got three titles, and he's been in nine championships. But he was also able to put together these teams, including the one he's on right now, that had a chance to win a title this year. You know, so yeah. um, you know that, that that's a big difference, a huge difference. Like if Jordan, if, if, imagine Jordan and his contemporaries being in this era, we would have seen, we would have seen Michael Patrick and Barkley on one team. Yes. Yeah. That would have been a by the way, that, I just put together a pretty good, you know, group. We need a point guard. Maybe we'll we'll see if Stockton wants to come. I think we can get Stockton <laughs> cuz stock, you know, Barkley's going to be our forward, Jordan's going to be our our two guard, Stockton's our point guard and you know, we'll get Patrick his first title. I mean, <laughs> ridiculous. But that's what would have happened. Um
1: you know, th- th- this other thing I-, I kept thinking throughout the documentary, and and let's do this with Kerr here in particular, is the post-playing careers of Jordan and Kerr. Right. Steve Kerr kills him. Yeah. I mean, Jordan's Jordan's uh, career as an owner of the Charlotte Bobcats. Has has been invisible, at at best, Uh, disappointing at worst, and given how competitive he is, I would think you would think that this must eat him alive. How can he live with it? How can he live with all that losing? Do they have to hide his players from him so he doesn't go down and beat them? I mean, this is the guy, I mean, he, he comes across so competitive that, I mean, literally, I don't know how he could keep his sanity and be the owner of that franchise.
0: I know. I mean, but I had Buck on the radio show um, two weeks ago, I think, and he's he and Phil are doing a podcast together. And, yes. they're, and they're and they're telling stories about the Jordan era in Washington. And by the way, as an aside, I don't think I said this. I couldn't have cared less if uh, it, this story was not about Jordan and Washington. It was a story about Jordan's Bulls, you know, and a story right. about the Bulls. I didn't care that we didn't get any of the Washington stuff. But you know, Buck
1: told. But a, I think there's a sto- I think there's a story to tell oh, about yeah. Washington, a, se- a separate story.
0: Yeah, but I uh, but it's yeah. not a ten parter. No, um, but the um, Buck Buck told the story of you know being on flights and you know you know coming off a loss and Jordan at one point was so angry and so frustrated with his teammates and everything that he went to the back of the plane and hung out with the older guys you know which by the way was a a constant theme during this thing just to come back to it briefly Jordan I think. You know, I think what it says to me, Tommy, is there was actually a maturity about him um, because older people tend to be, and maybe it was about being around older people who weren't going to sort of revere him. Um, you know, anyway, I, I, I digress. Bucks told the story about Jordan being incredibly frustrated, you know, uh, at being a part of those teams and being really frustrated with guys like Kwame Brown. And, you know, we, we've seen that over the years, great players not being able, not, not making the transition to great owner or great general manager. We've seen it both ways, obviously. You know, um, Jerry West is one of the great general managers in the yeah. history of the sport. But, you know, more often than not, the best coaches, the best general managers, front office guys are guys that weren't stars, that had to figure out a way to be You know, to get their production uh, based on you know more of what they learned and and knew rather than their athletic talent. Jordan, by the way, was both. But Jordan was both as a player. I don't want to, you know. But anyway, I don't know. Um, Yeah, Kerr, an all-time great coach. Phil Jackson. Yeah. How about Phil Jackson? He, you know, he he goes to LA and wins. You know, just keeps winning. What I mean, talk about charmed life. And by the way, who was responsible for Phil Jackson? Jerry Krause, ironically. That's right. Um, the uh, the, the last thing on that series, real quickly. Um, I really, really loved the way Steve Kerr told the story about the last team meeting. You know, after that season, about the tin can with the flame and, yes. and, the, and the stories. You know, I don't know if anybody, if Jordan, you know. knows what that poem was but it would be really interesting to hear his poem. I love the way Phil said, I I didn't realize that Michael could go that deep emotionally and you know, Kurt called it like essentially, I'm paraphrasing here because I had written it down but I don't see where my notes are on this, but one of the more profound moments of his life as the lights went off and the flame burned all of what they had. He, he said it, it was a moment he'll never, ever forget. Um, Wait, We didn't even mention the pizza thing, which there was more news about the pizza story. Did you see the news that came out uh, from the guy that actually was working? There's a Utah guy that claims he was the one that made and delivered the, the fateful pizza. Did you, did you hear? I mean, you know, the. I, I
1: saw that headline. Yeah, I know the story.
0: So, It's a Utah man named Craig fight posted on Facebook that he was the guy who made and delivered the pizza to Jordan. Um, He was on a radio show in salt Lake city, giving his version of the story. He says at the time of the flu game fight had been recently hired as assistant manager at a pizza hut in park city, Utah, about 30 minutes from downtown salt Lake. You know, Tommy, that's where I just was right before the pandemic. I was out in Park City for my my niece's, um, for my niece's wedding, and it's more like you know Park City to Salt Lake is about forty forty five minutes, but whatever, it's close enough. But anyway, he he says that the Bulls had already been staying at the Park City Marriott for a few days. And Fight says everyone in the local food services industry knew which hotel they were at when a delivery order came in from that hotel, the employee who answered the phone said he thought it was for one of the players. This guy, Fight Craig Fight, as the only bulls fan working there, took control of the order he said well i 'm delivering it." He said, I remember saying this. I will make the pizza because I don't want any of you doing anything to it. And then I told the driver, you're going to take me there. Michael's order was a large, thin, and crispy pizza with extra pepperoni. Fight insists that because he was still a new employee and eager to impress, he made sure to follow the food prep guidelines to a T. All of the ingredients were fresh. Nothing was added that could have gotten Jordan sick. Fight and the un- unidentified driver went to the hotel, checked in at the front desk, and went, went up to the bull's floor. As soon as the elevator door opened, it was like I got punched in the face with cigar smoke, Fight said. Fight's account of what happened next differs wildly from the account presented by Jordan's trainer, Tim Grover, you know, in that last episode, where he says five guys basically delivered the pizza. Fight says it was just him and his delivery driver, and he didn't even have five guys working the restaurant that night, that late at night. He says, the great guy who's been saying all this crap lately, apparently referring to Grover, he says, was was the one who opened the door and gave him $20 for the pizza and a tip. Um, Craig fight asked to say hello to Jordan, so Grover opened the door wide enough for MJ to look up from his card game and say, thanks, man. Grover says in the doc that after closing the door on fight, he thought to himself, I've got a bad feeling about this, implying that he feels the pizza was deliberately tampered with. Not only does fight deny contaminating the pizza to make Jordan ill, he doesn't think Jordan had food poisoning at all. Not from his pizza, at least. He says there were no other reports of food poisoning from the pizzas his store delivered that night. Um, and then he says, and I talked about this yesterday, did you get it diagnosed? Did he go to a doctor? All this innuendo on their part. One thing I'm reminded every I've reminded everybody is he was smoking so many cigars. They had windows open. He didn't have a shirt on, um, at around three or four o'clock in the afternoon in park city, the sun's gone behind that mountain. So it gets cold up there. So obviously, you know, he claims that he was the guy and, I don't know if there's any proof as to whether or not he was the guy. Another story came out that Jordan, when he got the pizza, spit on it so that no one else would eat it, and that that was a regular thing for him to do. But apparently he was upset that people had gone to dinner without inviting him earlier in the evening. (laughs) Crazy.
1: What, what What a psycho moment. The whole thing is psycho. I mean, the fact that you just said there's a, there's this belief that Jordan spit on food so nobody else would eat it. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just that that's a little bit of insanity. It's insanity to make it up, and it's insanity if it's true.
0: I wonder if there's a and- way to prove that this guy, like, if there's some sort of old timesheet, you know, from the yeah. Pizza Hut to prove that he was working in that at at that pizza place, and that that was the one that was open and made the delivery. It'd be pretty hard to go back that long ago. I mean, we're talking about 22 years ago. 23 years
1: ago. You ever have food
0: poisoning? Um, You know what? I'm sure I have. I'll tell you what I have had. I've certainly had enough alcohol to to feel the effects of alcohol poisoning. (laughs) There have been uh, at least two tequila nights, Tommy, that went south for me. I'll, and and you know there's nothing worse than that because it's a whole day of vomiting and dehydration and the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I had food poisoning once in particular. I remember it was after my first year covering the Redskins in '92 uh, when the season was over. My wife and I we took a trip to Grand Cayman for five days. Uh, never been there before. Uh, Where'd and, you stay? That's uh, where that's where
0: I went on my honeymoon.
1: Well, we stayed at the Holiday Inn okay. where they filmed the uh, bar scene in the firm. Tommy. They were filming the firm when we were there. No! That's not true! Yes. Hold on yes. for a
0: second. Stop. Stop. Can't believe that these two stories have never crossed paths before as long as we've known each other. My wife and I got married in March of 1993. We went on our honeymoon to the high and stayed at the Hyatt Grand Cayman. Okay. Yes,
1: which is where they did most of the filming.
0: When we were there, they were filming the scene at the pool when um Holly Hunter, her character, is there uh, you know, down at the pool being seduced or trying to get seduced by um why am I blanking on the on the uh the actor's name? Um any and anyway, Hackman. I'm sorry. Yeah, Gene Hackman. That scene. Yep. Gene, you know, it was uh, Gene. Gene it, it, it wasn't Holly Hunter's character. It was the uh, the uh, Cruz's wife, Gene Triplehorn, or whatever his, her name was. Who, by the way, I don't know if she was ever in anything else. We were there that that night. They, they were they filmed for like two consecutive nights of our honeymoon, staying at the Hyatt Grand Cayman in in March of 1993. And well, you're that's te- interesting. And you're telling me yeah. you were there at the same time.
1: Well, I don't know if it's the same time because when I was there, well, it had to be pretty, were,
0: pretty close.
1: They were well, it was pretty close because they were filming the the the, 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 the scene where Cruise is is you know Zane Hackman and Cruise are sitting in an outdoor bar with a couple of girls that Hackman set him up with.
0: Oh, right. That Cruise
1: shows no interest in the one girl and goes down to the beach. That was filmed at the Holiday Inn where I was staying. Got it. Where my wife and, and I. And that's an
0: earlier scene in the movie too. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. So we were. If we if we weren't there at the same time, we were pretty close.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine that they did multiple trips to the Caymans. Although, again, I mean, J- Hackman was in both scenes. Cruz was not yes. in the scene. At the Hyatt. The the actor, it, it was, I'm pretty sure if I recall, it was Hackman, it was the woman who played Cruise's wife, I think her name was Jane or Jean Triplehorn or something like that. She never did anything else, I don't think. And Holly Hunter was, I, I'm pretty sure there as well in that scene. Um and she was definitely more well known. I mean, Holly Hunter, I think, really made a name for herself in that movie, Broadcast News, which was right. probably five, six years before that. That was mid to late eighties. Um, yeah. But that is that. That's hysterical. I mean, if we weren't there at the same time, if they weren't filming both of those things at the same time, they were certainly within weeks, if not, you know, a month or so. Um, yes. Together, very,
1: very close. Well, when we were there. Uh, you know Eric Williams. Remember, he played defensive tackle. For yeah, for the Redskins? Redskins. Yeah, right. I mean, I I was pretty tight with him, and he told me he had a friend uh, who owned a bar, an American who owned a bar a restaurant in Grand Cayman, and he recommended I come by. He's a big go by. He's a big Redskins fan. mention his name and all that. So I, we did that. We stopped at this place. Guy treated us great. You know, I had I had a hamburger, big juicy. Lots of meat, hamburger, and that hamburger got me deathly sick. Uh. On t- on top of which, we had sun poisoning, too. <laughs> oh, God. So, uh, I I had food poisoning. My wife didn't have it. But we both had sun poisoning. Our trip, it was a five-day trip to, to Grand Cayman, which got delayed because of snow leaving Baltimore. Uh, and then, Half the time we were there, we were both sick.
0: Well, you know, um, first of all, you shouldn't have been eating a burger in in the Cayman Islands. You should have been eating, you know, seafood and fish and whatever. Um, But I'm not going to lecture you on that. But, you know, the snow thing is actually very interesting because the March superstorm of 1993, one of the biggest winter storms ever of all time, low pressure in terms of the uh, barometric pressure, etc., Happened when I was on my honeymoon in the Cayman Islands. And you know me with snowstorms, I'm sitting there following it. In fact, I will tell you right now, and Van Pelt will tell you this the next time, um, you know, if you ever ask him, I'm basically calling him to get weather updates from my honeymoon. <laughs> it was so stupid. He's like, You're on your honeymoon. What are you doing? I'm like, Well, h- how much snow? You know, how big's the storm? So maybe we were there, sort of at the at the same time, or really close to one another, because maybe the snowstorm that delayed you coming out of Baltimore was that superstorm of March '93. Do you remember the month that you went?
1: I think it was. I think we were closer to the end of February, since it was after football season.
0: Okay. Well, no, it wasn't a that was March? Storm. That was like March. I want to say it was March thirteenth, nineteen ninety three. It's it's. Anybody that follows like weather like I do, that's one of the biggest storms east Coast storms ever in history um and it was you know it was one of those where they, they were they were calling for thirty inches of snow like two to three feet, and it ended up being more like a foot and a half with a bunch of ice um as it turns out so it was still a big storm but anyway um
1: now the other thing uh, just as, as a grant came at aside. Uh, the other interesting thing that happened to us was, you know, we went into Georgetown one day, the uh, the basically the town uh, on on Grand Cayman, right. and uh, I'm walking around a store, and I hear a voice behind me saying, "So you took a vacation too, huh?" And I turn around, and it's Terry Orr, the Redskins tight end.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: he, he had come in off a cruise ship that had docked for the day in Grand Cayman, and he recognized me. That was pretty bizarre. Did you did you go in the submarine that they have at Grand Cayman?
0: Nah, I don't remember going in a submarine.
1: They had submarine rides. They literally had a submarine that you could go down in, and you know, look around under the ocean. Uh, it was very cool. It was the highlight of the trip for us. The submarine ride.
0: You know, um, yeah. it's so funny. First of all, did Terry was it Terry Orr who went to jail for something?
1: Yeah. What, what, yeah, did, he he go to, what, what did he go to
0: jail? What did he go to jail for?
1: Some kind of some kind of financial thing. I'm not sure what it was.
0: Um, you know, a recent trip, and I say recent, I don't know, it was four or five years ago, maybe to the Bahamas. Um, I uh i forget where we were i think we were in a restaurant and i look at this dude and he's looking back at me and it was lorenzo alexander so we ended up chatting for like 20 minutes um in in the bahamas but um who by the way truly in the last in the in the era of snyder i'm not sure there was a nicer Redskin than lorenzo alexander seriously um but back to the 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 food poisoning uh two things one the, the I, I'm, I'm sure I've had food poisoning before. I, look, growing up when we grew up, I mean, you had to probably, anytime you got the stomach flu, I bet half the time it was food poisoning because I don't think that the standards for food prep were the same back then that they were, you know, that they are today. But by far and away, the sickest I've ever been was a bachelor party, not mine, although I was pretty ill for mine but a bachelor party of a of actually it was my cousin's husband and I was in the wedding cuz she doesn't have any brothers and I was in the wedding and the, we were at um we were at a place downtown prior to heading to where we were going to head for the actual party itself and it was just tequila shot after tequila shot and for whatever reason over the years I, that is definitely um That is uh, a big problem for me, too much tequila. Tommy, the only thing I remember is the next morning waking up on the kitchen floor of the restaurant. It's like 5 a.m., having absolutely no recollection of how I got there. I don't know why I'm telling this story, but that's the sickest I've ever been. It was for a day and a half that I was ill after that. And to, so much to the point where I was legitimately dehydrated and almost needed to go to the hospital and i 'm sure many of you out there listening have had similar experiences, and some of you haven 't and and by the way, good on you but no matter what the situation was or how it happened, if Jordan had been throwing up, I believe that portion of the story i just don 't know what you know what caused it. I, I think the story is a weird story to begin with because if Grover were so convinced that it was food poisoning, why wasn't there ever some sort of follow-up investigation? Why wasn't there an attempt to identify? You know uh, what would have been? I don't know that that's a crime. You can't intentionally try to, to poison somebody. Um, but uh, but if but Jordan's that game that he had that night after being physically ill for as long as he was all night, all day, is amazing. Because any yes. anybody that's ever been sick that way, and almost everybody has, it's much different than a cold, you know, or a sore throat. When you're vomiting and you're, you know, you're basic, you have no energy, none, when that thing is over. You're well, because, so physically he, weak.
1: Yeah, you used it all throwing up. Yeah your Your body used all its energy,
0: <laughs> so the fact that he had that game that night is truly one of the great games of all time by an individual player and absolutely so he so netting it all out, Jordan's on the winners list <laughs> by the way, in talking about LeBron, I saw that you tweeted out this Doc Rivers statement that LeBron would have been the greatest NFL player of all time at any position he had picked in football.
1: That's ridiculous. Isn't that absurd? <laughs> that That's so ridiculous. I mean, why would he feel the need to say that? I mean, talk about overcompensating. I yeah. mean, better than Jim Brown at running back, better than Reggie White at defensive end.
0: Jerry Rice. You know,
1: better, yeah. I mean, this is absurd.
0: Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> I
1: My mean, oh God.
0: You know, I said this morning when I when I read that, um, I had forgotten that that he was a good high school football player. You know, and Urban Meyer apparently said that he would have been Urban Meyer way back in the day when he was recruiting him for Notre Dame. Uh, essentially, you know, watched watched him play football and said this guy's going to be an eventual NFL hall of famer if he wants to play football. But everybody knew that basketball, you know, was his thing. So I don't like, I'm not going to debate people um, talking about what, you know, especially urban Meyer more than doc rivers about him potentially being a great football player, or a great football talent. We know that basketball players, you know, if they choose football end up more times than not be being really good football players. But, um, I didn't even know that he was okay with contact. You know, football's different. You gotta, you gotta be okay with contact. You gotta be okay yeah. with getting hit. But he did play high school football, and, and he was had great hands, great feet. That's the thing about basketball players. I, I talked about this this morning, and I know we've talked about this in the past. But the difference between basketball and football is basketball, you're completely exposed if you lack coordination. You, you have to be supremely coordinated to play basketball well. And if not, it's very obvious that you can't play. Whereas in football, there are positions where you don't have to be tremendously coordinated if you're super fast and super strong. You know. And it doesn't get exposed at certain positions, especially on defense. And LeBron – a lot of basketball players – I mean, Gates is obviously the, the – and Gonzalez are really the two in modern-era football. I mean, they're, they're both Hall of Famers that were – you know, they were, they were great college basketball players. Incredible hands, incredible hand-eye coordination. Um, I bet LeBron would have been a hell of a football player.
1: And I know that. I, and I would probably agree with you. But the best at any position – I mean that's literally overcompensating. That's saying that's saying uh, I don't I don't know why Doc Rivers feels the need to do that. Right. Uh I, I don't know if he's got some kind of financial connection to uh LeBron to his agent or something like that, but that's just an absurd comment. <laughs> yeah. And it diminishes it diminishes the fact that he probably would have been a good football player. I mean that's what you're saying really, he would have been a good football player. I don't think anyone probably
0: outset. Yeah. I mean, when you say it that way, now the conversation turns to sarcasm, you know, it's like, Oh, okay. Jim, uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Jim Brown or Lawrence Taylor or Jerry Rice? Um, but LeBron really is, you know, I know these conversations happen all the time, but it is, um, and you, you really tend to dig your heels in on these conversations because it's it's really impossible to sort of compare errors. You know, LeBron James is six foot nine and two hundred and seventy pounds and he's fast and he's agile and he's quick. and you know Michael Jordan, who I consider to be the greatest player of all time, was six six two oh five. You know, and I, I mean, I, I, when we've had these conversations in the past, I've always said to you, if you take the era that I loved, the 80s, you know, into the 90s too, but the 80s is really the era that I loved. Carl Malone is the one dude whose body type and his, his athleticism and physical overpowering athleticism is the one guy you could pluck from 1990 or 1995 and put into 2020 and he wouldn't look any different everybody else would look a little bit different.
1: But, Kevin, the game today, physicality doesn't matter. Uh, it
0: does. You're wrong about that. Oh,
1: it no, uh, no, no. It, 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 it more, it's less relevant now than it was then. I mean, being big and strong... It's not necessarily an asset in, in today's basketball.
0: Yes, it is. You're just trying to say, you can separate the great shooters and the distant shooters from the guys that can't be stopped going to the rim because they're so big, no, strong, point, and skilled.
1: My point is what's your point? If you're, use, if you're using that as a difference maker, I don't think it's a fair difference maker. Just because, it, just because you think that evolution is on steroids and everyone's so much bigger and stronger now, than they were years ago. I don't think that makes any difference, literally, in the style of the game and at the outcome of 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 of, of players. Okay,
0: let me let me let me go to to another. Then I'll then I'll or I'll debate you on this. Today's players are more skilled than yesterday's players. Forget about the athleticism. Forget about the training, the diet, and the evolution, the physical evolution of of their bodies. They're more skilled than in the past. And by the way, there were super skilled players in the past, but there are more players with more skills today.
1: If the the most important skill is shooting the ball, yes.
0: You know what? It's not just shooting the ball. It's handling the ball. I mean, I understand what Pete Maravich was. I know what Isaiah Thomas w- was. And I, and I know a lot of those players and their skills would totally translate. And there's more skill that would translate 25, 30, 35 years later than physical athleticism. I understand that. But I've given you the thing that, that's upset you in the past. But I've watched these 1960s games you know, on NBA TV before. I'm sorry. I, I, I In watching Jerry West, I, he just doesn't have anywhere near the skill level that the players of today. He was a bad ball handler with his offhand compared to today's players, in part because he didn't really have to use it that much because there wasn't great defense. The defense was played at a distance. I've watched some of these games from the 60s. I, I'm not saying that Wilt and, and, and Russell – um, and that Koozie wasn't a wizard. West West is really the one that sticks out to me, Tommy, more than anyone else, because West is considered a top 15 player of all time, top 20 worst case. And I've watched some of those, lo- you know, the way they aired on ABC in the 60s championship games, and I'm like, my God, he wouldn't be able to beat anybody
1: off the dribble in today's game. I would disagree with you I know you that. would. I would absolutely disagree with you about that. I'm looking for it right now, because Jerry West's vertical leap was legendary. It was higher than most than, than a number of players playing today. And uh, okay, I'm well, now you're, getting, well now you're getting well now you're
0: getting into the athleticism. I, I was focused on the skill part of our conversation. I, Jerry West, I know, was a phenomenal scorer, and you can see that he can shoot and that he can get to spots and make shots and get buckets. I'm telling you, in today's game, with his skill level from back then, I think he would have had the ball ripped from him consistently.
1: I, do you know that Jerry West in a playoff series against the Baltimore Bullets?
0: <laughs> How many did he average?
1: Average 46.3 <laughs> points per game. I know.
0: Yeah. I don't think he could do it today. I don't <laughs> think there's any chance against a a a good defend uh, a decent defender in the NBA that he could do it today I don't think he could do it at the college level today but anyway
1: okay I can't find it
0: um let me uh tell everybody real quickly about Roman if you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor what would you say a week maybe Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major US cities. Basically, a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment. ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need and on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you you with free two-day shipping. You'll also get unlimited follow-ups for free with your doctor anytime that you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to getroman.com. That's getroman.com and use my promo code Sheehan. S H E E H A N. Getroman.com. Use my promo code Sheehan for a free online visit and free two day shipping. That's getroman.com promo code Sheehan for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. So, Tommy, there's this story that came out yesterday that I was completely unfamiliar with. It was another one of these Michael Jordan-related stories in the wake of, you know, The Last Dance. This one titled, Michael Jordan Really Wanted to Beat One Team in College More Than Any Other, and that team was Maryland. Um, It was written by Dave Ungrady. Dave's written a lot about Maryland sports over the years. And he interviewed Buzz Peterson. Buzz Peterson, and several others for this story, Buzz Peterson, for those that don't know, uh, was Michael Jordan's best friend at the University of North Carolina. They were teammates for Dean Smith in Chapel Hill uh, on those Carolina teams. Buzz Peterson himself was a highly recruited player out of high school, um, and he told the story that the team that really Jordan had it out for more than any other at Carolina was Maryland, not Duke. He said he was, and, and one of the reasons he says is that initially when he was in high school, he was interested in Maryland. Maryland was the one that he would talk about. Um, that was the school that he actually, you know, had a strong interest interest in attending, but Lefty Drizzell, the coach at the time, had one scholarship left. And he basically said to Michael Jordan, Buzz Peterson himself, and Jeff Adkins, who was a very highly recruited player out of Martinsville, Virginia, He Lefty basically went to all three of them and said, I've got one scholarship left. The first one to respond that he wants it, gets it. And so Jeff Adkins was the first one to respond in part because Jordan, according to Buzz Peterson, was sort of turned off by Lefty's ultimatum. Now Lefty was interviewed for this story as well, and Lefty says that he doesn't deny it, he doesn't remember it specifically, but he said he 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 did things that way back then. Um, I'm looking for the exact quote Um from lefty uh anyway i'll paraphrase it lefty essentially said that sounds like something that i would have done the other reason jordan had it out for maryland is that adrian branch and jordan had played in an all-star game in wichita kansas either together or against each other and jordan had a great game but branch got a co-mvp of the game with jordan And Jordan didn't like that. And one of the things we've learned from the last five weeks, Jordan had 30 points in the game, Branch had 24, and they were voted co-MVPs of the game. Um, And Jordan didn't like that. Adrian Branch was a Dematha kid, played at Maryland, had a great career at Maryland, and by the way, was... Uh, on championship laker teams you know one of the things about this i'm i'm digressing here for just a quick moment there's several shots during the the, the last stance of keith booth you remember keith booth played for Maryland, and he's always oh, yeah. he's always in civilian clothes um he was the Uh, in 97 was the last first-round pick of the Bulls, so he was a big part of that night. He wasn't a big part of the 98 team, but you saw many shots of him. Well, Adrian Branch was, I think, the last pick of the first round by the Lakers and ended up winning a ring with the Lakers, if not two. He may have won two rings with the Lakers. But anyway, I think he was just one. Um, But anyway, um, Jordan had it out for Branch after that you know when when jordan didn't get the mvp by himself um peterson said He was hot about that. Michael was always looking for something to get an edge, to get motivated about. He never had to get motivated to play Maryland. If I was in a room with him and I'd say Wichita, that's where that high school all-star game was, he knew exactly what I was talking about. (laughs) Even more than Duke, Maryland is who he really wanted to go after and to go up against Branch in particular. Jordan's record in 3 years against Maryland was 5 and 1. Um the one game that Maryland won. Let me just say that that era there were some big games against Carolina, especially in 83 and 84, Jordan's sophomore and junior years. They replayed one of them last weekend um on ESPN, the 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 Bias versus Jordan showdown at Cole Fieldhouse. They actually re-aired that game on ESPN. Uh, last weekend but anyway um in jordan it, uh, carolina i think was ranked one and maryland was ranked like seventh and i was at that game that's the first jordan cuff dunk you know rock the boat dunk um, right which um happened to cole Fieldhouse, but um The so he went five and one. The one game they won, Maryland won in 1983 at Cole, 106 to 94. That was the year uh, you you may not remember this, but the ACC was testing the three point shot, and I mean, God, the the line, the actual three point line went through the top of the key. It was so short. Um, But that was the year that NC State won the national championship and beat Virginia in the ACC finals, and then again in the Elite Eight in Atlanta. And um, you'll see the the ACC games back there with this ridiculously short three-point line anyway maryland won that game every other a lot of the other games were super close you know i think you remember this but for those that don't remember north carolina was basically everybody's rival in acc basketball in this in in the 80s and in 90s before duke became duke carolina was duke you know, and, and Carolina was the team that everybody shot for. And Carolina-Duke was a big rivalry. But Maryland had a big rivalry with North Carolina as well. And they had legendary games against one another. You know, it, it, and it was a legendary coaching matchup. Lefty Drizell and Dean Smith. Oh, but, yeah. But Dean always got the better of it. I mean, always. I mean, I I remember specifically... In Carmichael, they had a big lead with a minute to go, blew it, lost by one, you know, against Jordan's team. But the game that is legendary in Maryland circles was a loss at Carmichael in Chapel Hill against Jordan's Carolina teams. So one of the five wins for North Carolina. Maryland's down one with 10 seconds to go, and Lefty puts his son, Chuck Drizzell, into the game. I think you know this story. Chuck did not was was at the end of the bench. He was Lefty's son. Chuck was a really good high school basketball player at Springbrook in Montgomery County. Um but Chuck was not a good college basketball player. He was on the team because he was Lefty's son and he played a little bit here and there, but for the most part it was, you know, it was end of bench minutes. He wasn't going to play against North Carolina and Lefty put Chuck into the game at the end of the game and called the play for his son to take the last shot to beat Carolina. And Chuck got free on the baseline and he's driving for a layup, a game-winning layup, and out of nowhere comes Jordan and he swats it away as the horn sounds. And afterwards, you know, lefties asked about, uh, you know lefty why did you put chuck into the game he said well he's my son you know i put my son into the game I, I, we had a chance for my son to beat north carolina and um and that's one of those five wins for jordan against Maryland during those three years that he played against Maryland and you know people always talk about the bias versus Jordan matchup bias you know played Jordan for two years because bias stayed all four years Jordan only stayed three and bias was a year younger so they they matched up four times during their career um not uh and then bias you know The 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 second the first two bias was a freshman and and bias was very raw as a freshman his sophomore year as he got better, you know he still wasn't the bias you saw as a junior or a senior when he was the two time ACC Player of the Year and the National Player of the Year. Um, Jordan never faced the best of bias. He didn't. Jordan was gone. Um, you know his, after his junior year, which was Bias's sophomore year. Bias Bias is a junior and a senior was unstoppable as a college player. At the end of his sophomore year, when they won the ACC tournament, he was pretty much unstoppable. That was a matchup that we were anticipating in 1984, which was Jordan's final year um, when uh, was a potential Maryland North Carolina ACC final, but Duke upset North Carolina. And Maryland ended up beating Duke in Lefty's first and only, you know, ACC tournament uh, title. But um, I thought that was interesting. I, I had never heard that story that Jordan A had an interest in Maryland, but Lefty basically put it on the table with Buzz Peterson, Jeff Adkins, and Michael Jordan, and said first one to respond, yes, gets the scholarship, and that Jordan had it out for Maryland more than any other school that he played in the ACC. You know, Jeff Adkins was a good, you know, he was a good college basketball player, but, you know, and he started probably, I would say he started two of his four years, maybe three, but he was all, he was on good teams with Branch and Bias and Ben Coleman and Keith Gatlin and Herman Veal and Jeff Baxter. He was on good teams. He was very much a role player on those teams. And Buzz Peterson was a good college player at Carolina. Obviously, none of them turned in to Jordan. Um but I thought wow. that yeah two,
1: two players that Maryland nearly got could have changed the course of history for basketball at the school
0: Michael Jordan and
1: and Moses Malone Oh and
0: Moses Malone, yeah of course. Of course.
1: The other one. Well,
0: it, when you know still to this day when Lefty talks about Moses, if you didn't know, you would think Moses actually went to Maryland <laughs> and played <laughs> for him. Because he'll always say, "Well, when I had Moses, well, he had (laughs) Moses for one day of classes, and then that was it. Yeah, and then uh, you know, and he told us this. You know, he was the one that that advised." him to take the deal with U- the Utah stars of the ABA. But the only thing lefty advised is tell him you won a million dollars a year because they were only offering like 300000 or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, and then lefty, I think, connected him with um, the agent and, and the rest is history. Uh, th- that is really the – that's one of the great what-ifs in, um, in Maryland sports history, if not college basketball history, is if Moses had come to Maryland and played – uh, you know, he would have been the best – he would have been a dominant, dominant center in college basketball at a time when centers were truly a factor in the sport. Yes. You know, and Lefty never got that Final Four. But he I, – I feel pretty confident that with Moses – and you know, Moses would have gotten there with John Lucas and Brad Davis and Mo Howard. Um, they would have gotten to at least one Final Four. Um, I think so. Yeah and maybe a national championship. Um, Two more things before we run for the day. First of all, this Cody Latimer story. Um, The Redskins signed Cody Latimer as a free agent during free agency, and Latimer appeared in a Colorado court yesterday on multiple felony charges stemming from an incident early Saturday morning. Um, The incident, uh, according to News 9 in Denver, Latimer, another – according to the police report, Latimer – And another card player, there was a poker game going on, got into a heated argument during uh, this poker game at the home of Roderick English, who told police that Latimer is his best friend. English said he separated the two men in an argument and ordered everybody to leave his apartment. According to the police report, there were about seven or eight people in the apartment. English then told police that both he and Latimer had been drinking and that Latimer returned to English's apartment 30 minutes after leaving. He was agitated, angry. He blamed English for the initial confrontation during the poker game. At that point, English told police that Latimer pulled out a handgun from his hoodie, waved it around, not directly at English or his girlfriend, But according to the police report, Latimer Latimer said that he was going to kill everybody. The situation de-escalated when Latimer emptied the magazine and cleared the chamber of his gun, but the peace didn't last long as Latimer later fired two shots near English who responded by pinning Latimer against the wall. Latimer retaliated by hitting English on the top of his head with a gun. English fell, but continued to hold Latimer and again, pinned him up against the wall. The fight ended after Latimer told English to calm down. Um, So Latimer's telling his uh, supposed best friend to calm down after he's already fired two shots near him. Now here's the interesting twist to the story. Latimer's attorney, Harvey Steinberg, told the court yesterday that he had been contacted by law enforcement concerning an investigation of a sexual assault of Latimer's four-year-old son that was allegedly perpetrated by one of the individuals at the poker game. Steinberg told the court that the allegations concerning the shooting incident occurred at the same time and location as the alleged sexual assault. Latimer, just uh, uh, in terms of history, has had a, a, a bit of, of a history with a previous um, incident in May of 2016 where he was arrested for an outstanding traffic ticket while police were investigating a complaint that he had that he was a victim of domestic violence at the hands of his girlfriend. Now, apparently he's also suffered at times from depression um, and other sort of uh, mental illness. Now, I, I, this story continues to sort of get added to in terms of his recent history. Why did the Redskins sign him?
1: (laughs) He doesn't fit the uh, Ron Rivera uh, culture change image, does he?
0: Not really.
1: No. No, he doesn't. Here's here's something that that I think a lot of people knew, but we've been reaffirmed that between this and the Quentin Dunbar story, is that poker causes a lot of grief between (laughs) athletes. I mean, the whole Gilbert thing started because of card playing. I mean, you know, it's amazing how many of these things start because athletes are playing cards with each other. And Jordan, that's all he did.
0: Remind me to tell you about the Gilbert Arena story. I don't know if you read that. Did you read that yesterday about him winning $300,000 in a lottery? No. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it in a moment. Um... Uh, here's the because p-
1: all, all that started. I mean, you know, both of these incidents, Latimer and uh, the the Quentin Dunbar case, yeah, poker, all are related to car playing
0: and drinking, and late nights. Yeah, you know, that all, yes. all all sort of goes together. Um, I, uh, I I look, I this this part of the story where his four year old son may have been sexually assaulted at this thing, and perhaps you know. Uh, by extension, caused his reaction. I mean, that's essentially what the implication is from the attorney. Um, I mean, I think all of us know that. You know, if if your child was sexually assaulted by somebody, you know, who the hell knows what you're capable of doing? That that would be among the worst possible things um, to be uh, to to have happen. You know, and so I mean, you know that reaction he didn't kill anybody and he didn't hurt anybody except for the contusion on the top of his friend's head but you know that part of the story we still need to see how that part of the story plays out I mean there could have been justification for his reaction um with that said this is a guy with a little bit of a a checkered history and maybe even you know a history that includes some depression um, and Suicide Thoughts. There's a video out there with uh, him being interviewed a few years ago in a, by a Denver, I think, preacher. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much due diligence the Redskins did with him. Um, you know, I just I think the Redskins have a, a, a culture to change. And I don't know if you can just cut him now based on this information. You sort of have to lay it pl- let it play out a little bit and, and presume innocence because, you know, if you did release him right now and it came out, that his four-year-old he was reacting to something that happened to his four-year-old son that was terrible you know you'd look pretty bad for cutting him you know i I just like i i look at this organization and i'm like jesus christ can anything ever be easy like it's great that they got rid, rid of quentin dunbar in time if quentin dunbar is guilty of this crime and who knows apparently there are five people that will swear that quentin dunbar had nothing to do with it uh you know, what we might be finding out in that case is that Quentin Dunbar's best friends didn't know that you could actually go to jail for lying about an incident. (laughs) Who knows? But, um, you know, Cody Latimer wasn't going to be a big-time, you know, player on this team, I don't think. He hasn't been anywhere else. If If there was any knowledge that there was some checkered history. Why even take the chance? It wasn't a lot of money, I get it, but um, it's sort of a tough position they're in here, don't you think? Would you cut them well, out right?
1: They don't have to do anything now.
0: I guess they don't. They
1: can, I mean, so, you know, they could just let this thing unfold and uh, when comes time, they can make their decision. There's nothing they have to do now. I mean, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's doesn't make them look good, but, uh, you know, in the scheme of things, I I doubt most Redskins fans even knew he was on the team.
0: You know, I think most Redskins – I think, you know, the Redskins fans that listen to this podcast and other Redskins podcasts, and I think everybody knows who Cody Latimer is in that world, but I think your run-of-the-mill, you know, football fan who, you know, is a Redskins fan may not have been paying attention to that signing that much. I mean, Cody Latimer's best season was last year when he caught 24 balls in New York for the Giants. I mean, that's it. Um, He's got six career touchdown catches in six seasons. This wasn't a guy. I don't think they were expecting to come in and be a star. I mean, there. I mean, I don't know that there was a guarantee that Cody Latimer was going to make the team. I think you know it's one of those situations. You got a culture change. You, you, and now you're put into this position where you'd probably prefer to just move on from him because, as you would say, the juice ain't worth the squeezing, um, regardless of whether or not he's guilty. But you got to be careful in a situation like this because if you cut him loose and he's completely innocent, and even more so, he was totally justified in many ways based on normal, you know, people's thoughts, uh, in reacting the way he reacted, maybe not with, maybe not with the gun, um, but, um, you know, then you end up looking bad. Like you bailed on somebody that was completely innocent. Worse, you bailed on somebody whose son was assaulted. Um, I don't know. They, it's just never. Oh, it's, it's everywhere around the league. It's not just them.
1: Uh, last, yeah. Although I mean, it's remarkable. Things have been pretty quiet for a while. Then all of a sudden, they just blew up.
0: Every everybody's getting arrested. Dunbar, Baker, Ed Oliver, uh, yeah. Latimer.
1: Like I said on Twitter, the cops are arresting a lot of innocent NFL players.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, last subject real quickly. Um, off of the last dance, and we can maybe do this in, in greater detail on Thursday, especially if we don't have a lot to talk about. Um, I did a segment today on radio. Give me your best idea for a D.C. sports documentary, a lengthy, you know, 10-parter. doesn't have to be 10 parts, but a, more than a 30 for 30. Give me your best idea for, for a D.C. sports topic for a documentary.
1: Uh, okay. Um,
0: Want me to give you my number one without, even, without hesitation? Go ahead. The Rise and Fall of RG3 in D.C. That's 10 parts. That is the build-up to trading for him, the build-up to drafting him, the um, first mini-camp where you and I were both there and he was letting the planes pass, which impressed the hell out of you. Um, The shock and awe. I mean, the New Orleans shock and awe game is one episode. You know the the Baltimore injury and the Cleveland game that followed it is another episode. The Seattle game could be two episodes. You know what what happened you know after the injury and in the off season of two thousand and thirteen is is multiple episodes the all in for week one and then throughout the two thousand and thirteen season. This is a ten part documentary. The meteoric rise of Robert Griffin the Third in Washington, and then the immediate fall of Griffin in Washington would not only be interesting to Redskin fans and be, by the way, trust me on this, people, very revealing. There are so many stories you've never heard. I mean, and it would have – I mean, I would be interested if everybody – you know, told the truth. And if everybody revealed all of the stories that people like you and I have heard for years behind the scenes from various people that sometimes could have been exaggerated and they could have even been false for all we know. But that would be interesting to not just Redskin fans. That would be interesting to sports fans. That would be a documentary that would get a lot of run, I think, because he, that year he had in 2012, was amazing, and it caught the sports world, you know, was was paying attention, you know, and I, I think that would be a phenomenal documentary.
1: Look, I don't think it would be a ten-parter. I think that that's a bit much. Uh, I think it's a documentary that's going to wind up getting made by somebody, but I don't think it would be a ten-parter. Uh, there's one that's near and dear to my heart that I know most people aren't going to be interested in, But I think the return of baseball to Washington, D.C., from uh, basically it's a 10-year process uh, that includes the story of the Boston Red Sox as well, I think that would be an interesting 10-part documentary. But the one I think that would be riveting, that the RG3 one would be a part of, is Dan Snyder. It's the most hated owner in pro football.
0: Yeah. Somebody called in with that, and I, I would agree with that. And the RG3 thing would be part of it. But the RG3 thing is a lengthy documentary. It might not be 10 parts, but it is not a 30 for 30, which is what I used to joke about. It's much more than a 30 for 30. Um, But, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we've talked about this many times, but it is really hard to imagine what the Redskins are in 2020 compared to what they were in
1: 1999 when he bought the team. Yeah, yeah. I mean the whole. I mean, starting from the process with Cook dying and the whole process for yeah. buying the team, and the and the competition. Then, I mean, look at the characters: Steve Spurrier, Joe Gibbs. I mean, Marty Schottenheimer, you know, a, Mike Shanahan, yeah,
0: uh, Vinny yeah. Cerato, um Fred Drasner, and some of his other big. T- you know, Zuckerman, some of his other big investors originally. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean that. That would be the series.
0: Well, you know, the... the I'm whole,
1: surprised no one's ever done a book about Snyder.
0: That, that whole, why didn't Jack Ken Cook leave the team to his son is so interesting, and there's so much there. Um, I actually, one of my ideas, and this isn't probably a lengthy documentary, um, also dealt with baseball, and it's, it, you may correct me here, because I don't know the history with all of the other teams like you do, but it is... Close to unprecedented, right, that a major market lost two baseball teams in 10 years?
1: I would say so. I would say so. I'm trying to think uh, what else would come to mind.
0: Uh, I mean, Washington lost the Senators in 61 and then the Senators in 71, the expansion Senators. It, it, this it was a major m- market, and, you know, not New York, not Chicago, not LA, and I know DC is a much different city today than it was in the 1960s in many, you know, different ways. But they lost two baseball teams in in a decade, and you know I think there would be some really interesting aspects to that too because we know that the attendance in particular was terrible, especially after the 68 riots you know and and people avoiding you know people from the suburbs in particular avoiding going to games and the senators were weren't dead last in attendance and I looked this up but in their final season they were next or third to last in attendance you know they averaged less than 10,000 fans per game in 1971 um but uh th- that would be interesting to me the the rise of Georgetown as a basketball program and more than that as an iconic sports brand in America, um, I think would be a really interesting documentary. You know, John Thompson didn't build Georgetown the moment he recruited Patrick Ewing; they were already had become a big time program. You know, it's really amazing to look at John Thompson's career and and understand that his first year was 1974 or 72-73 at Georgetown, but he started going to the tournament long before Patrick Ewing got there. They were in an elite 8 game in 1982, 2 years before Patrick got there. You know, um so it, it, in all of the stories of the Georgetown program, this small catholic university in washington dc becoming the biggest seller of college sports apparel in america you know they sold more apparel georgetown basketball did than any football school in america for a period of time there i think that would be an interesting documentary
1: you know what else would be what i'm sure no no i don't want to do that because somebody's probably already done this uh The Big East. Well, that the yeah,
0: they, they that was done. That, that there was a okay, documentary in thought. the Big East. Yeah, it
1: yeah, yeah. had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I tell you what. You know what else would be a good documentary? The sports fix. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good documentary.
0: I actually did have another one that I think would be great for DC sports fans. Would be sort of. You know, Washington's sort of the home of the quarterback controversy. I know other towns have had it, but God, we've had a lot of them. And it would start with Sonny and Billy, and it would move its way to you know um, the Schrader and the Doug Williams controversy, and then the Rippin' and the Humphreys, and you know would go on and on. And I, th- I think that would be a cool. It's probably more of like a thirty for thirty. Um, or, you know, a one hour, you know, DC documentary. I enjoyed, I I didn't ask you, I enjoyed the PG County basketball documentary, the Durant thing Friday night. I thought it was good. I think there's a bigger documentary just about the history of, of basketball in DC. Um, but anyway, all right. Anything else?
1: That's all I got, boss.
0: All right. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Thanks. Okay. All right. That's it for the day. Uh, Don't forget, rate us, review us, especially on Apple. If that's the way you're listening to this podcast, write up just a quick review, rate us as high as you can rate us. Um, Subscribe. That helps too. And don't forget, uh, especially um, if you are up early, I'm on radio 6 to 9 a.m. on the Team 980. You can listen also on the Team980.com. All right. Thanks. Enjoy the day. Back tomorrow.